Hello and welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. We are fortunate to have with us today Dr. Rui. Dr. Rui is a resident psychiatrist in Macon, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Rui. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about mental causes of maternal deaths. And then we know that there are physical and mental causes of maternal deaths. Mental causes include suicide, drug overdose, and mental illness. And they are almost always preventable. And this is from a meeting, a virtual annual meeting of the Academy of Consultation Liaison Psychiatry that was done in January 2021. Mental health causes accounted for nearly 9% of maternal mortality. This doesn't even account for the indirect effects of mental disorders, increasing the risk of many medical causes of death. Dr. Rui, what are the determining causes and contributing factors and even recommendations to prevent these mental maternal deaths? Yes. So I think that it's very important for pregnant women and even women in the postpartum period to make sure that they're getting adequate prenatal care. And this includes mental health. I firmly believe that without mental health, there is no physical health. And so we need to make sure that pregnant women and postpartum women are having access to these resources. I strongly believe that we should regularly screen pregnant women for signs of depression, even psychosis, um, and also for women with pre-existing mental health conditions. I think it's important that they're followed very closely by um, their primary care doctor or their psychiatrist if they have one. A lot of times, pregnant women who have pre-existing mental health conditions may be hesitant to continue their medications during pregnancy. And for, for this reason, a lot of them abruptly discontinue their medications, which can in turn exacerbate their health conditions and which may ultimately lead to suicide, postpartum psychosis and other causes of maternal mortality. Wow. And, you know, overall, the CDC estimates that 700 mothers die every year from complications related to pregnancy or delivery. And then most of the mental disease related deaths 65% occurred between 42 days and one year postpartum. This finding speaks to the importance of a fourth trimester approach to perinatal care and following women longer after pregnancy. It is even important to screen in pediatric settings and when the women bring in their children for the postpartum care. Can you speak to this fourth trimester approach? postpartum care and, you know, mental screenings. Yes, I think it's very important. For the most part, most women, they follow up with their OBGYN in the six weeks postpartum visit. And after that, they may not follow up until their yearly visit. And so a lot of these symptoms, as you stated, most of the mortality is between 42 days to the one year period. So it's important for even primary care providers to regularly screen these patients for signs of postpartum depression. And like you said, the pediatric in the pediatric 
pediatric setting, that's perfect. The mother is already going to pediatric appointments. And so that's a perfect opportunity to screen for these symptoms. Women with postpartum psychosis oftentimes may experience auditory hallucinations, delusions that may ultimately lead them into hurting themselves or even their infant. And so I think that it's very important to make sure that we're regularly screening these individuals. And even if the women are not able to come into the office for a follow-up visit, I know some offices will call them and just screen them for signs of depression, signs of psychosis. So I think that that's very important. Yeah, that's important because in 2018, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology called for a new paradigm of postpartum care as an ongoing process rather than the standard single encounter at six weeks. Also, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that primary care pediatricians screen mothers for depression at the children's one, two, four, and six-month well visits. So that's very important that you say that. And in the majority of the diagnosis, 91.4%, the majority of the diagnosis was documented prior to pregnancy, indicating that there were opportunities for intervention and for prevention by prenatal and primary care physicians. But the diagnosis, let's speak to the different diagnoses. They include depression, anxiety disorders, bipolar, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as postpartum depression, even including substance abuse. There has been a sharp increase in substance abuse-related deaths amongst mothers in the perinatal period. And the proportion of pregnancy-associated deaths related to substance abuse has increased from 8.7% in 2005 to a whopping 41.4% in 2014. So treatment for opioid use disorder can really save lives. Can you speak some into that? Yes, there are many pregnant women that struggle with addiction all throughout pregnancy, many women that use throughout their pregnancy, whether it's alcohol, cocaine, opiates, or other stimulants. And so proper management of those um, conditions, for example, for opiate use um, disorder, women can go to a methadone clinic and that's a very they're in a secure setting where there's a doctor that's observing them for any like symptoms and um, also suboxone sometimes is used. Methadone, I believe, is recommended for pregnant women just because of the efficacy. It's long half-life. It lasts a really long time. And so that has been very effective um, for women with alcohol use disorder. It's important to make sure that if they are experiencing detox withdrawal symptoms, they go to the nearest emergency room just because alcohol um, withdrawal can be potentially fatal. Some individuals may experience seizures, tremors. It's very dangerous. Um, So it's important to make sure that those conditions are properly managed. I mean, what are some of the symptoms that a, a woman that has postpartum depression 
What are some of the symptoms that she would experience or her family should look out for? Yeah, so definitely changes in mood. Most women experience depressed mood, so they may feel really sad um, most of the time. Um, some women may experience a decrease in interest or pleasurable activities. So the things that they used to enjoy doing, they no longer find enjoyment out of that. Some women experience feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, worthlessness, and guilt. Other women experience suicidal thoughts you know some women experience suicidal thoughts and they have the impulse to act on those thoughts also changes in concentration and energy levels some women experience poor energy levels it's difficult for them to concentrate slowing of movements and that's what we call psychomotor retardation where it may not be something that the patient themselves is able to recognize but people around them may recognize that oh you're moving a lot slower than you normally move and so those are some signs and symptoms some women also experience anxiety so those are things to look out for so is there like a preponderance in low income or minority women and also has things changed with this COVID pandemic? Yes, things have changed with the COVID pandemic. Personally, I've seen a lot of patients with well-controlled mental health issues that have experienced a worsening of symptoms due to the pandemic, due to the isolation, they're no longer able to socialize and be around people. And for some people that helps, you know, with their mood and their symptoms. Other people are really stressed and anxious, you know, so people with general anxiety disorder, people with PTSD may experience exacerbation of those symptoms, obsessive compulsive disorder as well. A lot of people are experiencing phobia of germs um, because of the current pandemic. And so a lot of these symptoms have worsened for most patients. And uh, like I said, a lot of my patients, they've been on medications and have been tolerating it well, have been pretty stable. But the pandemic has just caused a shift in everything. And just adjusting to the new way of life has been very hard for many people. And is there like a racial distribution of, of some of these diagnoses? Yes, there is a racial distribution. African-American women and uh, minority women are affected disproportionately as white women. Um, it's seen in higher rates. Also, as we know, like even historically speaking, racial biases do exist in medicine, in all areas of life. And so w women of color are disproportionately affected by these things. Wow. Dr. Rui, can you speak to your training and how did you develop this passion for mental health and just, you know, being able to help women with this diagnosis? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in Buffalo, New York. I went to medical school in Antigua, American University of Antigua. And even in medical school, I took an interest in the behavioral sciences. And during my clinical rotations, I did most of my clinical rotations at DeKalb Medical in Decatur, Georgia, now known as Emory Decatur. And I really enjoyed the interaction, the way I was able to connect with the patients. I had a good experience 
exposure to a large population, a diverse population. And I just really connected with my patients. I loved hearing about their lives. I, I loved um, helping them. I also had a lot of close family members and also friends that were affected, that have been affected with mental illness. I have a really good friend from college whose sister was schizophrenic. And um, I saw the way that it affected her, the way that it affected the family as a whole. And I just wanted to, um, I just, that's where my passion grew. I just wanted to be involved in helping these individuals that are often misunderstood. I am Nigerian. And so mental illness in Nigeria, you know, is often, it's taboo. You know, it's a topic that people don't really talk about. People may attribute, you know, mental health conditions to witchcraft and other things. And so oftentimes, you know, in those countries, the mentally ill, sometimes they're chained, you know, and treated like animals. Sometimes they're dismissed and they're just outcast. And so I just felt an, a yearning to help those individuals. Wow. Are there a lot of minority women in psychiatry as physicians? They are not. Um, I believe that the percentage of minority, why well, I'm not sure about minorities as a whole, but the percentage of black females in the field of psychiatry is about 2%. Wow. Yeah. That's a whopping number. Yeah. Now, did you have an interest in substance abuse as a subspecialty? Yes, I do have an interest in substance abuse. I just seeing individuals and being exposed to individuals from all walks of life. I did my I did some medical school um, elective rotations at Brentwood Hospital in Shreveport, Louisiana, and it was a psychiatric hospital. It had a physician's health program where it helped physicians who were struggling with substance abuse. And so that really opened my eyes that, you know, addiction affects people from all walks of life. It can be the homeless man down the street or it can be the president of a Fortune 500 company. And the symptoms are exactly the same, lack of control and dependence on this substance. And so, yes, I do have an interest in that field. Wow, thank you. Now, you know, if we go back to the postpartum depression, how can family members, after they see some of these symptoms that you talked about, how can they help their loved ones to get the needed help that they need? And also in these times of the pandemic, yeah, so they can help their loved ones by encouraging them to reach out to their doctors. I know a lot of people are hesitant to go and see a psychiatrist, and I would urge people to do that. But if that's off limits, I would tell them to go and see your primary care doctor. Tell them about the symptoms you're experiencing. Um, some people go to counselors and like other mental health professionals, such as therapists, to do different therapies. There's cognitive behavioral therapy that can help with these depressive symptoms. But overall, I think that it's important to see a, a healthcare professional. And that can be a medical primary care doctor or a psychiatrist. So, you know, just with pregnancy care, there's a need for a wider prenatal screening for mental illness and substance use disorders of women, especially minority members, you know, to address the racial and ethnic disparities in perinatal care. Can you speak to some of the prenatal screening that can be done or just screening to identify people at risk for some of these mental health conditions. 
Yeah, so screening, um, a lot of times they're questionnaires. When you go into your doctor's office, um, especially during that prenatal period, they'll ask you questions about depression, questions about even um, manic symptoms. A lot of times what looks like depression may actually be bipolar because the symptoms are very similar. And so making sure to ask these questions, I think as healthcare professionals, we have a huge responsibility because if we don't ask the questions, we're not going to get the answers. And so it's important to ask um, our patients questions, even patients with no reported history of um, mental illness. It could be that they do have, they are mentally ill, but it has gone on undiagnosed for many, many years. So making sure to d- thoroughly screen them for every symptom. And a lot of times it's very time consuming, but in the end it's worth it because you can potentially save a life. Wow. And that's why in, in uh, uh, we've been talking in OBGYN that for optimal prenatal care, really, mental health professionals should be integrated into the obstetric mm-hmm. care so that we can have an optimal outcome. Dr. Rui, I want to explore further the question that can marijuana use during and after pregnancy harm the baby? In my clinical practice, I have seen women report using marijuana to treat severe nausea associated with their pregnancy. However, there's no research confirming that this is a safe practice and it is generally not recommended in women. Also, the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists has recommended that OBGYNs counsel women against using marijuana while trying to get pregnant, during pregnancy, and while they are breastfeeding. Can you speak to this substance use around pregnancy? Yes. So there has been an increasing use of marijuana amongst pregnant and non-pregnant women. And I believe that that's because of the push towards legalization of marijuana. As far as research, the impact of marijuana during pregnancy on obstetric outcomes has been unclear, and that's due to conflicting data. However, it has been linked to low birth weight infants. As far as long-term effects on the pediatric population, it has has been linked to uh, many neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and even hyperactivity. And so it's something that you definitely want to be mindful of. And so it's important to caution pregnant women against um, substance use. Yeah, indeed, there has been no human research connecting marijuana use to the chance of miscarriage, although animal studies indicate that the risk of miscarriage increases if marijuana is used early in pregnancy. Also, some associations have been found between marijuana use during pregnancy and future developmental and hyperactivity disorders in the children. And the evidence is mixed as to whether marijuana used by pregnant women is associated with low birth weight or premature birth although long-term use may elevate these risks indeed. Research has also shown that pregnant women who use marijuana have a two to three times increased risk of having a stillbirth child. So given the potential of marijuana to negatively impact the baby, why the use of marijuana? What do the women feel? 
Well, a lot of women experience a euphoric feeling. And so many people who do use marijuana use it when they're stressed out because it helps them to sort of get away from reality. Also, for some women, it stimulates their appetite. Marijuana use is more common amongst women with severe nausea and vomiting during pregnancy. And it has been found to relieve those symptoms. And that's why a lot of women who suffer from severe nausea and vomiting vomiting tend to use self-medicate with marijuana. And, you know, for marijuana use, very little is known about its use in breastfeeding. And some studies suggest that moderate amounts of THC, which is the metabolite with marijuana, find their way into the breast milk when a nursing mother uses marijuana. And some evidence even show that exposure to THC through breast milk in the first month of life could lead to a decrease motor development at the first year of life for the baby. So in accordance with the American College of OBGYNs, we want to counsel women against using this particular substance in pregnancy. So Dr. Rui, there's also the medical marijuana and the street marijuana. Can you speak to the the differences and um, maybe the different things that they used to treat? Yes. So medical and street marijuana, structurally, they're identical. However, medical marijuana has a higher concentration of THC. Um, It's typically used to treat um, patients with end-stage cancer, and it helps to stimulate their appetite. It's also used um, in patients with chronic pain because it has shown to help relieve the pain. And so those are the two main uses of marijuana that I'm aware of. Well, Dr. Rui, we want to thank you so much for coming to our podcast and uh, we hope to have you back soon. Thank you. I'm happy to have with me today Myrana Craig. She is a licensed professional counselor, licensed in the state of Georgia to provide care for people ages 7 to 99 And she is also the director of Enhanced Behavioral Health. She has also been a good friend of mine for more than 20 years. Myrana, welcome to this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Sagadi. I'm excited to be here and talk about this subject. This is a very important subject because 9% of pregnant women and 10% of women in the postpartum period meet criteria for a diagnosis of depression. And I can't even imagine the prevalence in also in minority women and low-resource women. Can you speak to some of the issues that pregnant women face when they're having mental health issues in pregnancy? Why is it at times their symptoms go unnoticed? So a lot of times pregnant women's symptoms go unnoticed because those mental health symptoms look similar to what happens in pregnancy. So in pregnancy, I don't sleep, right? So a lot of the symptoms of mental health disorders have to do with your inability to sleep, right? In pregnancy, my mood changes, right? So obviously with mental health disorders, you're going to have changes in mood. So that is one of the things is that they kind of mimic what normally happens in pregnancy. So the doctor doesn't know or or whoever, whatever, you know, would screen for these things, you know, doesn't know how to distinguish. Wow. And even in minority women, there's that super 
woman syndrome. Can you speak to some of that? Absolutely. Black women are dying regularly because we are expected to be strong, expected not to acknowledge our own pain and our own emotional issues. We stuff them down. And so what do we do? We probably will overeat to compensate, things like that, that not handling our mental and emotional issues can definitely be a risk factor for hypertension and things of that nature. So we have just been taught to just be strong, to be the strong holders of our communities, not just our household. We are often caregivers and in single family homes a lot of time or caregivers of our parents. And, you know, so that caregiver role has a lot of burden and anxiety that comes with that. So we look at other health issues, us not addressing our mental health is killing us as Black women. So, Mariana, what are some of the barriers that especially low-income women and all low-resource women could face in accessing treatment for mental health conditions? Well, first we want to look at what are the stressors that these women have. And so that would be definitely your social economic status is huge in terms of what resources you have to you. And then if I'm a single mother, I'm going to have stressors that, you know, someone who gets to share the burden of parenting wouldn't have. Poor social support. Things like if I have an unplanned pregnancy or unwanted pregnancy, just what comes with that emotionally, stress in my relationship with my partner, and just general life stress. And then when we look a little closer at the barriers, you have to look at in the culture that I'm from, what is accepted in terms of seeking mental health help or therapy or medication, what's culturally acceptable in terms of treatment. So we have to look at those things as well. And then, you know, there's a shortage of mental health professionals, especially in Georgia where we are, there's a shortage of psychiatrists, psychologists. So we have to look at that because that's impacting the resources they can find. And now it's not that the women have a lot of choices, but if they were going to look for a mental health professional, what are the important things the woman, the patient should ask as she's seeking to find somebody to take care of her for her mental health issues? Absolutely. First, you want to ask them, have you worked with a client who's had this mental health issue before? That's number one. Number two, you want to look at cultural competency. Ask them, you know, what have you done? What kind of training have you done to make you culturally competent to work with people in other cultures different from you? And the thing is, a lot of times clients are afraid to ask us what makes us qualified to work with them. You want to look at what is their level of education. Ask those questions. You need to know if they, you know, you don't want them to be experimenting on you. And if you as a patient cannot be the one asking these questions, right. your family member can be asking these questions for you. Absolutely. A lot of times with my clients, I will have their family members calling and seeking mental health help for them. So you're absolutely right. It's important that families 
they're actually the first line of defense. We want families recognizing when their family member needs help. Wow, this is important. This is great. Now, I want to move on to a very difficult subject to discuss, and that is, you know, suicide and just pregnant women and women in the postpartum being probably so depressed that they either contemplate suicide, attempt suicide, or actually complete suicide. What are some of the risk factors and how can we mitigate this risk in its contribution to maternal mortality? So in the pregnant client who has had a mental health issue prior to pregnancy, their risk of suicide is so much higher. So suicide is a leading cause of death in mothers who have had some mental health history of some sort or if they're currently experiencing a mental health issue. So we want to look at, too, things like psychosis. So if they're hearing voices or, you know, seeing things, they have a higher risk of suicide. If they have a drug issue, they have a higher risk of suicide. Wow. And so what should the family members look for, you know, so that, you know, in in the woman, just to help make an early diagnosis? I think the biggest thing that families need to do is we don't acknowledge what we're seeing. And so if our family is seeing things and they're not addressing them or asking us to address them, it's huge. So for me, it's really about educating the public on mental health symptoms, educating the public on what women experience in pregnancy and in that definitely in that first year after pregnancy, those two vulnerable points of pregnancy. So I think that is the biggest thing is education. Wow. And then, you know, just also reaching out to counselors. Right. And, you know, in the in the rural community, what is the place for leaders in the family or leaders in the community for women that don't have access to your conventional professional counselor? How would you speak to that? You know, I think it is really tuning into our families looking at how our family members cope, you know, when under stress or strain, supporting our family members, really acknowledging when they're going through periods of transition, and then also talking to your own doctor. So, you know, a lot of times my clients will talk to me, their therapist, about how do I get so-and-so help in my family or I'm noticing these things. So talking to the resources that you have to find more resources. And then remember what I said, looking at, like we said, the health department for resources, looking at our community behavioral health centers for resources. They are there. And so I would really start with looking at the health department and looking at community behavioral health centers in the area. Luckily, with the internet, you can just Google, you know what I'm saying? Put in, you know, therapist and they start to pop up and just call. Don't be, people call my office and ask all kind of questions and I stop and I make sure I answer every single one. And I'm glad that you mentioned the internet. Um, We're in rural Forsyth, Georgia. And at times, some of 
the patients that we see and some of the women that we are speaking to now have no internet. That's true. How do we deal with that? I know that is something, you know, so once COVID hit, therapists that were not using telehealth services, telemedicine, we all started using them if we weren't. And so you're absolutely right. So certain clients couldn't, if you didn't have internet, you couldn't use those services because a lot of us just went straight online, you know, to deal with COVID. So calling and if you have access to a phone, there are lifelines, like a lot of our local hospitals will have like mental health lifelines. There's the national suicide hotline. So looking for some of those hotlines and calling and they can help you connect with the resources in your area as well. And yeah, you're right. Telehealth could be either like on the computer looking at the person or you could actually, because for the people that don't have internet, exactly. they, most people have a cell phone. Exactly. So they could still have these counseling sessions over the cell phone, yeah. especially for women in rural areas. Absolutely. So I'm glad you spoke to that. Yeah, that is something that, you know, because sometimes their connection isn't good. So I do make sure that, you know, that raises another good point. One of the things that's really important when we're doing telehealth is we need to know where the client is. So when the session starts, it is really imperative that you give the mental health professional your location, the address, in case something were to happen during the session so that they could get you help if necessary. So, but yes, one of the things I've been doing is so like if they have a poor connection, we switch to phone. And then I think, you know, a lot then transportation is another issue, too, that I, I find. Luckily, my office is located on a bus line for that exact reason, because everybody doesn't have transportation. So you, those are some things you want to be looking at when you're looking at a provider. Can I get to them if I don't have transportation? So you want to be looking for things like that. Wow, thank you, because that's a real problem in, yeah. in rural communities. Absolutely. And one thing I also want you to touch on, we know there's a, a pandemic going on now. There's COVID, and it has so many mental health ramifications. And on top of that, with all the, you know, being pregnant, all the other issues a pregnant woman is dealing with. So can you speak to the COVID-19 pandemic and pregnancy and, you know, some of the things we can do to make things a little bit easier on ourselves? Absolutely. The biggest thing is what I tell people is we've all experienced a collective trauma, like I said earlier. And so it continues to go on. And so we have had to just constantly be vigilant about understanding COVID, understanding how to protect ourselves from COVID. We've had financial changes due to COVID. And so, you know, we really have to create what I say is a list of things that bring us pleasure and trying to make sure that we don't have one thing that brings us pleasure, but we create a long list of things that bring us pleasure because if we just have one thing that brings us pleasure, it actually leads to things like addiction. So growing a long list of things that bring us pleasure, we definitely need to exercise, to de-stress, make sure that we're eating well, make sure that we have people around us that are healthy for us, that we are communicating the pain and the loss that we all feel. We're all experiencing 
loss on all different types of level. And even just a shake to what we thought was normal, you know what I'm saying? So we now have this new normal. We're trying to figure out what is that? You know, so really taking care of ourselves, really listening to our needs, really seeking help. Wow, this is great. So I think we've come to this particular, the end of this podcast. I want to thank Myrana Craig. She is a licensed professional counselor. She is the director of Enhanced Behavioral Health. And she has been seeing patients from the ages of 7 to 99, uh, licensed in the state of Georgia. We just want to thank you so much for the insight that you have brought to our pregnant women and to women in particular with an emphasis on minority and low-resource women. So thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for what your foundation is doing. It's important. Education is the key. Thank you. Thank you.